0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amiga Auto Insurance. Amiga, empathy is our best policy.
1: Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work and behind the scenes revelations.
2: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Dan Abrams. He is the busiest man in media. And I actually wrote down his introduction <laughs> so I can get all the various things he's doing right. He hosts a daily cable news show in primetime, 9 p.m. on News Nation. He has a daily hour of news radio here at Sirius XM on the POTUS channel. He's the ABC News chief legal analyst, which has him up early mornings for Good Morning America. On Patrol Live on the Reels Network, which has him up late nights on the weekends. And he's the founder and CEO of Abrams Media, which holds a number of companies, including Mediaite, where many people get news, but especially people in the news get their news there. Every journalist and reporter starts their day at Mediaite.com to find out what's going on. And the Law and Crime Network, which is like a newer, better court TV. But the main reason he's here with us today is he's also written a series of best selling books that shed new light on historical legal cases. There are five in the series, including Lincoln's Last Trial. The most recent is Alabama v. King, which was sort of set at the outset of the the civil rights movement. So that was a long intro, my friend. Too Welcome long, to The show too long. It was too uh, long. You're a too busy man. man. <laughs> it's nice to be with you. It's great to have you here. Thanks for coming in, of course. And uh, you're a, you're a terrific guest for this show because you come at writing from so many different angles and in so many different formats, from long form books to short pieces of journalism to writing. Uh, in support of broadcast journalism. But before we get into all that, let's let's start with your drink of choice, uh, which is one of my favorites as well, bourbon. Yep. Yep, bourbon All right. bourbon on the rocks. Can they so, hear the well, ice? Hold on, yeah. let's make sure.
1: All right. You, need there some you bourbon Just making really sure you can hear the ice. And and I tend to um I tend to go neat but Doug oh. picked, no, Doug That's, picked the bourbon, so I'm going to go with ice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's
1: good. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Well, cheers. Great to cheers, see you. Thanks cheers. Cheers. Good in. to see you. Happy to be here.
2: Mm. All right. Now, now we are settled in. So let's start with Dan Abrams' The Early Life. You come from a family of big brains, particularly big legal brains. Your sister, Ronnie, is a federal judge in New York. And your dad, Floyd Abrams, is a famous attorney for, for work
1: in constitutional law. So, were you as a young kid? Would you go to the courtroom and see your dad work? Yeah. So, my sister and I went to the Supreme Court a couple <clears throat> times to watch my dad argue. Wow. Um, we would occasionally see some of his uh, his big cases. We actually went to to visit him once in in Las Vegas and a a libel suit brought by Wayne Newton against NBC. And uh, it's a really ugly case. And I remember, um, you know, my dad, it was just sort of a very difficult, mean-spirited case between Newton and NBC. And we went there and we got into the elevator and we were in the elevator with Wayne Newton. And... He couldn't have been nicer. And we were like, you know, daddy seems like a really nice guy. Like what's the, what's the big deal? I mean, why, you know, cause he was on the opposite side of him. Um, but yeah, so we, we definitely watched him. And uh, I think my sister more directly kind of followed in his footsteps. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you went on to go to Duke university and then
2: Columbia law. So you did get your legal training and then after Columbia, you kind of took a turn. Away from the law.
1: Yeah, so, so I actually had worked at a law firm uh, called Wilkie, Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher, which was a terrific law firm, and I'd worked there for the summer, and they made me an offer, and you know, I said, you know, there are these, there's this new thing called Court TV, which is starting. So it's your third year of law school. Correct. You're having these thoughts. Yeah, so after the second year of law school, I'd worked at Wilkie, Farr, and the way it typically works is you know, you, if you get an offer after your second year, you go to the law firm the yeah. next year, and I said to them... Um, Would you give me a year to decide uh, whether I want to come back to practice law? Because I was really interested in this court TV thing. And so instead of making good money as a lawyer, I made Mm -hmm. really crappy money as a a production assistant at court TV. And... A Wilkie had given me a year and they said, just as long as you don't apply to any other law firms, we'll keep the offer open. Yeah. And at the end of the year, I just decided to stay in the in the business. And that that wasn't totally
2: out of the blue for you, because I know your time as an undergrad at Duke, there was this thing called Cable 13. And that was was that TV and radio or just radio?
1: It was just it was TV. So TV. it was a TV okay. station, and you know, uh, it, I'll make it sound much bigger than it is. First, I was the anchor of the Cable Thirteen news program, which is like the student run, student news run, channel. but it's but it was like sort of you get together, kind of whenever everyone can all be there at once. Mm. I'm sure now it's like like a professionally run operation. But but back then, it was just a kind of a question of, you know, can everyone end up showing up at the same time to actually try to do a newscast? Yeah. Um, so we did a few. And I remember Reagan came to campus, and we did a big one around yeah. that, which is pretty cool.
2: So from 94 to 97, you're at Court TV. And this is like the O.J. Simpson era where so many people you know, had a springboard into a media career, like Greta Van Susteren, I think, was there. Who were the other people on the... O- well, she so, wasn't made to be a court TV, she wasn't but a court she was TV. covering OJ, Yeah, the court
1: TV people were Terry Moran, who's now at ABC, Greg mm. Jarrett, who's at Fox mm. News, um, Cynthia McFadden, who's at NBC. Um,
2: mm. uh, I mean, I, as a news story, can you imagine that today? I mean, even prior to the advent of cable news, the entire country was dialed into that 24-7. Totally, 7. totally. I mean, These I mean, days, it would be insane.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, but these days, it would be in different venues, right? Then it was like CNN and Court TV were the only two places to watch the trial. Mm. So now, you'd be able to watch a live stream, you'd be able to watch it here, you'd be able to watch... And so, as a result, like we became the center of the universe. That's right, yeah. Um, and, and part of it was where we were in media at that time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That is just, for some reason, that just made me think of this story. Like someone else was just saying to me, these Pilates instructors have become celebrities. I don't know why I like came across that, but if you're, so many people are dialed into these Pilates yeah. screens that people like well, start to it, recognize Pilates spins instructors And, and in I bars. appreciate the comparison, but but, never, <laughs> but nevertheless,
1: it, it is, but there is something to that, which yeah. is that it's a niche audience of passionate people, Mm -hmm. right? And that's, look, it's one of the reasons I started the Law and Crime Network was that I knew how passionate the true crime fans were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we now have the most significant YouTube presence of anyone by far Mm -hmm. in the true crime space. And it's a question of recognizing sort of where is the audience today and how are they migrating? Yeah. And how do you get to them? You know, it's like as of five years ago, people would have said, well, it's got to be a podcast. And and podcasts are still incredibly relevant, particularly in the true crime space. We have a whole true crime department. But but now increasingly, you're seeing people, you know, moving to other venues. Uh, You're seeing people, for example, as I was saying, YouTube, which certainly was a thing, but it's now a combination of, you know, podcasts and YouTube. And, you know, it's become a huge business. Yeah, I mean, the numbers
2: there are starting to rival and surpass, you know, for a few people, surpass even the some of the cable networks. Oh, for but sure. Speaking of running a network, you know that I think many of our listeners may not know or remember you were running MSNBC. So after Court TV, you go over to NBC News, you're running, you're the GM of MSNBC. This is like oh 07. You're hosting the 9 p.m. hour. You hosted that hour before Rachel Maddow did. And uh, was Olbermann there when you were running it? Yeah. So that, that must have been yeah. a bit of a man, management headache.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, it, look, I'll say this about Keith is that he deserves credit for turning MSNBC into a liberal network. Right. I mean, the problem for me in terms of my on-air persona is that, and, and my Reality in life is that that's not who I am, right? I am more of a political moderate. I'm a centrist on you know some issues more right leaning, some issues more left leaning. Uh, That's kind of what the theme was of the goal was of MSNBC in the early days. Remember, Tucker had a show, Laura Ingram had a show. um, You know, it was Laura Ingram. Was she at MS at that time? Yeah. Well, not 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 when I was there, but Mm -hmm. I'm saying that prior to my arrival, Mm -hmm. but. You know, Keith, again, it's sort of like recognizing an opportunity, right? He recognized that outspoken left-leaning, not hidden bias left, mm-hmm. outspoken liberal was something that a lot of people wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the, he was largely responsible for. Does he also deserve
2: credit for discovering Rachel Maddow, which he seems to
1: take. You now, know, I don't know. If he, I, will, speaking I, terms. I, you know, I have no idea if he's the one because remember that, that. You know, they when they told me that Rachel Maddow was taking over my hour, it's not like it was a great shock, but it's not like I had been part of the discussion either. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I say that to say, now this is post my being GM. Right. So so I was GM and then I pitched to get out of the GM job for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And I then wanted to go back on the air. I took over the nine o'clock hour and did a kind of, again, centrist uh political media legal show. And it came after Keith and it didn't really work. Right, that's a tough lead in. It for is you, yeah. a tough lead in for yeah. me. And, and I think they recognized that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it was obviously, you know, and they offered me an hour in the afternoon at the time. And I said, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to maybe just stay doing the legal and start my own thing. Yeah. And that was the moment. And then you became a pioneer in that sense. Well, you that,
2: set out earlier than many to start building your own platform and your own castle that has, has uh, really set you apart from the rest of the industry. I mean, so, you have so many properties around here, you know, uh, online and, and not that are kind of leading the way for what others are trying to do now. And everyone wants to go start a podcast. You've been doing this for more than 10 years. And, and I think that
1: one, of the things that, that one of the things I will take credit for, and there are not many things I'll take credit for, but this one I will, is recognizing early on that people were more interested in looking at politics through media personalities than they are through politicians. Meaning they're more interested in hearing what Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow have to say about the political issues of the day than they are in Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you- like secondary research versus primary. Right. Just tell me what to think. Correct, yeah. right. And, and so that was the thinking behind media. And I was mm-hmm. like, If we just focus politics, but use the prism instead of the 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 politicians and what they're saying, and instead focus on what the media folks are saying Mm -hmm. and how they're interpreting it and where the bias is, et cetera, that's a business.
2: Yeah, and that's how media started. Well, that gets into the writing and the organization of primary data here. So. The writing, because it's all storytelling, mm-hmm. right, in in the end. And and particularly for a longer form thing, like on 60 Minutes, there are tons of producers and writers that organize all the elements of a show for the for the viewers. And even in shorter things, you know, if you're preparing information for your radio show or for your cable news show, there are writers on all these news shows and things like that. And so for you, you must have, you know so much time of your day must go into sort of organizing the elements of the story and putting it all together and doing the writing. And at this point for your show, you have probably writers of your own. You're doing more editing than writing yourself, but how do you think about story and presenting the information to
1: the audience? So it's one of the, the most underappreciated sort of art, so to speak is how to write differently for different venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even, even within a network, right? When I was at the today show, I would write a different piece than I would write for NBC Nightly News. And it would be a different piece than what I would do for MSNBC. And that's not based on a political uh, change. Is it based on a time constraint? It's, or it's a... a, time constraint, but it's B, sort of like, what is the audience? Who are mm. you targeting? Et cetera. And it becomes um, you know a different kind of story right i mean and again i'll bring it back to even to to abc um you know at at abc when you're doing the world news uh it's a more kind of somber event Mm -hmm. um and coverage and as a result the writing has to reflect the seriousness of it in the morning it can be a little light more Mm lighthearted, um and Mm -hmm. on cable it can be much more opinionated Mm -hmm. and so you can be in the same place same you know, parent company network and be writing in three totally different ways. And by the way, all of that is very different from writing, obviously, for for a book. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll tell you that that most of my day these days is spent writing. I mean, it's spent writing because I'm writing primarily for my my News Nation uh, primetime show. I'm I'm writing the introductions because they're opinion based. Well, I I was just going to say most writers like to have some alone time
2: to sit down and, and either write or just organize their thoughts, mm-hmm. organize their time and their schedules and things like that. And with the amount of stuff you're actually on air uh, or running a company or in a business meeting to you know, tell the COO what to go do, are you finding enough time to be alone and, and get that stuff done?
1: So look, because I'm doing so many things, there is definitely something that's paying a price, right? I mean, there's just no way I could do everything just as well Mm -hmm. Um, and there are times when I think, for example, you know, Mediate, um, I don't spend almost any time. I mean, I get people writing to me complaining about stories and and I have no idea what they're talking about. I haven't Mm -hmm. read, not not only was I not involved in creating the story, I haven't read the story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, if I had more time, I would spend more time helping what I think is the crafting of Mediate stories. I think they're doing a very good job, but I think that... I know how to do that stuff. I mean, I've been doing it for, for a really long time. So that's an area where, you know, I wish I had more time. So when you spent. do doing news, news Nation stuff, that writing, wh- where does that happen?
2: And are you, you know, on your computer sort of scripting things out of how you're going to present the news or?
1: But yeah, so it's all it's so it's interesting because um, initially I was doing it more in the office. And it goes back to what you just said about needing alone time, like to write these scripts, which are, you know, very much my position, my take. Mm -hmm. on important stories. Do you have other writers? Do you trust writers that you will then edit the stuff or you really write everything? No, I get, so what'll happen is in the morning meeting, I will say, here's where I want to go with this. And I will give notes on, I want to go here. I want to go here. I want to start with this. I want to make sure we have sound bites of that, et cetera, et cetera. I will then get a script Um, on some of the more straightforward stories. It's editing. Mm -hmm. It's just a little editing here and there on some of the more opinion based stories i it's somewhere between a heavy edit to a total rewrite yeah
2: if you're going to do sort of like a talking points there's right. dan abram's view well, on and, something
1: and every show i do i mean every yeah. show i do do dan abram's talking points on one thing or another mm-hmm. um and so it just has to be me mm-hmm. um and so for those if they didn't get the note and you know some people are better at getting my notes than others and and by the way this doesn't make them Less good at their jobs. The fact that I'm asking them to channel me. Yeah. Um. But but that's the that's the gig. So when GMA calls you in and says,
2: "Hey, we're going to talk about Roe v. Wade or something like that," well, are, you, are you prepping for that, or you just it, you sort of can go in and do a rip and read, or how does how no, does it No. All... So that
1: becomes just making sure I'm researching. So yeah. then I have to go research what are the issues in whatever case they're looking me for me to do, and then it's actually helpful because I, I do a pre interview. With GMA the night before and a lot of people don't like doing pre-interviews because it feels like it's you know a lot of excess time. I actually like doing it for GMA because it helps me gather my thoughts and helps me figure out Exactly where I'm going to want it because a lot of these stories are stories I haven't even been following that closely, and they'll say, "Hey, we're going to cover the Danny Masterson trial tomorrow," um, and I'll be like, "Okay, I, you know, I've been really been following that case that closely. Let me let me go dig in," and so I'll go research it, and then I'll, as I'm talking to the producer, I'll think, "Okay, you know, so you know, as he's asking me questions or she's asking me questions, it hits me, okay, this is what'll be interesting to the GMA audience." Yeah, so you know, you do a daily radio, daily
2: cable news, and maybe there's some overlap there in stories and content, but you must be consuming volumes of information on a, on a daily basis. Where do you get your news? You know, for the, for the daily, I just need to be
1: up on general events. How are you consuming your news and from where? I mean, look, a lot of it comes from Twitter. A lot of it is based on which um, properties I follow on Twitter and I follow, you know a thousand or something, you know, media entities or people on Twitter that helps me gather uh, what's going on. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I do start at Mediaite um, to see sort of what the controversy is of the day. Um, And then I'll end up hopping around uh, based. So I don't have a sort of, you know, if my Bible, you know, I start with Mediaite. Um, mm-hmm. And law and crime. Too. So a
2: lot of it's online and Twitter. Do you have sort of CNN and Fox and MSNBC on TV? Oh, sure. You know, with the sound down in the office? Sure.
1: Yeah. But, but, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of the time they go to media too right. To, right. <laughs> to find their stories. Uh, so, so yeah, of course, cause I got to know sort of what's breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when I'm working from my office, I have, you know, cause I have my, my corporate office where Businesses run out of. And there I have, you know, uh, five TV screens and in the office at News Nation, I've got four. Um, and so it's a question of just making sure that and it's not just seeing what's happening. It's also fo- it's it's really is instructive to me to see what is MSNBC focusing on versus what is Fox focusing? On. Well, that's the key, right? Yeah.
2: It's not always in the it's in the story selection as yes, much as anything else where totally. any bias would show up. Totally. Yeah. yeah, So so your series of legal history books, I think there are five now, right? Yep. And in your writing of those, you have a, a co-writer, a co-author, David Fisher. Yep. Can, how does the process work of, you're the first guest we've had, I think, who has sort of a co-author setup. How does the process work of you guys working together on these books, which so, are New York Times bestselling, mm, awesome, awesome books?
1: So, So every single one of our books we have a theme, and that is there's a transcript of a trial that's largely been forgotten to history. Some amazing former president, I mean, you know, everything from the Jack Ruby trial, King, John Adams, Teddy Roosevelt, Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And there's these transcripts out there of the case. And we both start with the transcript, and we will both read through the transcript and highlight the transcript, and then talk about where we want to go with the story. I will then send David um, quite extensive notes um, based on the transcript, based on the story. And he will have done a lot of the research already. So he will send me newspaper clippings, for example, Um, most often because these are, old, um, you know, Xerox, uh, you know, old, old clips Mm -hmm. uh, of newspaper clippings. And I will have read through the newspaper clippings to see sort of what the coverage was like, uh, because part of it is telling the story around the trial. Yeah. And that's what a lot of that we get from this primary source material being a lot of the papers at the time who were covering uh, these events. And I'll then send David extensive notes on where I think we should go. Is there archival work beyond newspapers that...
2: So the one going back the farthest, I think, is probably the Lincoln book, right? That John was, Adams is the farthest, we get 1770.
1: So are you in archives finding all yeah, old... well, that's, that's a lot. That, that one's a little bit- that involves a little bit of detective work when mm-hmm. you're going back that far. I mean, the fact that yeah. there's even a transcript at all, but the transcript mm-hmm. in that case, in the John Adams and the uh, representation of the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre case, that the transcript there was much in dispute- there were many people who felt that the transcript wasn't, uh, wasn't accurate enough. And, and it's so interesting because with the Lincoln book, there was the transcriber who had been Lincoln's transcriber in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And one of the funny things about reading back about as part of our research for the Lincoln-Douglas debates was Lincoln's transcriber, Robert Hitt, who was the one who did the one in the story, and um, Douglas's transcriber transcribe different events. It was the same debate, mm-hmm. and you read their transcripts side by side, and they're slightly different. Not, uh, like, substantially different, it, or I, just sort of a little bit of well, you know, not just verbiage a word, here not and there? Not just a word or two. I mean, mm-hmm. there's really a kind of a bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Lincoln's transcriber had Lincoln doing better. Mm-hmm. Douglas's transcriber had Douglas do it. Not yeah. by a ton. Yeah. You know, still the same themes, et cetera. But I thought that that was... Um, you know, that was really, that was really interesting, but I, I want to just, you know, follow up just on something you asked me about, you know, David Fisher is, you know, he's sort of the leader on these projects. I mean, you know, I, I, I am the, someone called in, I did a C-SPAN uh, interview, with the book c SAN books, C-SPAN books mm-hmm. and a caller called in and said, why is your name bigger than David Fisher's on the, on the books? And I said, you know, what, it's a really fair question because it shouldn't be. His name should be bigger than my name. I have a better jawline. (laughs) Well, you know, that's it. It was just like, you know, I'm, he goes, the person said, sort of thinking I was going to take offense to it, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of like trying to get, get me. They said, is it just because you're more well known? And I was like, yes, that's the reason it sells books. It's it's absolutely why I said, David will make more money this (laughs) way. (laughs) Right. I'm not defending it. But my mm. point in, in bringing it up again is just to yeah. say that, you know, he leads these, meaning we both pick the books, we both pick the topics, we both, but he definitely sort of leads the direction yeah. and well, I do more the legal stuff. Well, I, you,
2: you have praised him. I, I've been to some of your book events before and you, you have been very gracious in your praise of him and I, and, um, but it made me wonder how you found him. Cause there are, there are lots of talented writers out there, but it's hard as hell To sell a book, as you know, and and a platform helps. So you have numerous platforms and you can sell books and people believe in you and your reputation. They know you put out an A product. So anything associated with Dan Abrams is going to be worth picking up and paying 30 bucks for. Someone like David Fisher may put out an A product, but people just never hear it. So... Aligning with you is, is a very smart play and there are many writers who do that, you know, whether they're aligning with James Patterson on the fiction side or with you or or somebody like Brett Bear, or something on the, the nonfiction side.
1: How did you find David Fisher? Yeah. David Fisher found me um, and I'll say David has 30, I think, best selling books because uh, he has partnered with a whole bunch of different people on mm. books. A lot of them are are biography. Milton Berle, William Shatner, Bill O'Reilly. I mean, mm. he's done sort of like books with a lot of people, but he's never I think he would say this. that He's never had a the kind of partnership that we have mm. um, on the books. Um, the other books have been more, you know, him kind of writing the book uh, with the other person helping to some degree, I think. Um, I, I don't know if that was the case with O'Reilly, for example. Maybe he was more involved, but but um, uh, but generally. Um, That's what he's done. Um, He came to me through a mutual friend and said, there is a transcript out there uh, from the only trial that Abraham Lincoln ever argued as a lawyer that was transcribed. And it's from nine months before the Republican nomination. And it's a fantastic murder trial. And it was only discovered in 1989. And I said, come on there's no way that there's this transcript yeah, from 1980s Treasure yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just discovered in 1989 and no one's talking about this Lincoln transcript. I didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. He's like, he sends me the New York Times article from 1989 of the box being discovered in the garage of the great grandson of the defendant with a yellow bow around it. And I then went, looked it up and there was one American Bar Association article about it. And apart from that, it had been largely ignored. And I'm like, Oh, my God. I said, this is an amazing story. When you read, it's a fantastic murder trial, too, mm-hmm. with with Lincoln as the defense lawyer from nine months before the Republican nomination. So, you know, that's how David and I got together was yeah. he had reached out to me through mutual friends to say, I've got the story. And I think probably for the point you're making, which is if he were to write the book by himself, that... Um, it probably would might not have got as much attention, but mm-hmm. writing with me. And, and I have to say that, you know, David will tell you this, that that, you know, there were decisions that, you know, he would have made that that I think would have been wrong. And I think together the book becomes much stronger. So
2: would he write a chapter you'd review? Yeah, you'd, you'd write a chapter. He'd
1: review yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's it's look in a lot of the first drafting comes from him. Um Not all, but a lot. And um and then, you know, I mean, for example, in our latest book, um, you know, the first Chapter of the book is know, this is this king or, yeah, or is king this one book, coming or Alabama yeah. v king yeah. um, you know the whole first three pages uh, I wrote um, and then the next. 10 pages he wrote. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but but I think that, you know, we, we do try and keep it so the, um, you know, the, the sensibilities. Is he a lawyer? No, but boy, he he loves the law, I think, more than I do. I
2: was going to like, going back to your days with your dad, Floyd Abrams, I mean, going to see him make arguments and the prep that goes into that, it must be such a good example of clear thinking, clear writing and your own legal training as well must show up in your own writing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it does. Um, I hope it does. But I, I, David is also, he, he thinks like a lawyer um, mm-hmm. as well. And he, he loves the law, um, has a real affection for it. Um, so I think that certainly helps. But yeah, look, I, I became a better writer over time. And it's funny, I see myself. I went back and looked at my college essay, right? That I wrote to get into college. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's not a kid who's going to be able to be a great writer, um, and it just evolved with getting the right kind of people making corrections, including my dad, and edits mm-hmm. um, that you can get a lot better. Did you ever keep a diary or anything like that? Not really. No,
2: but I you wish write, I you must. I mean, these days you write every day for things. Correct. You probably have been doing that since high school.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been writing. A lot, but as you as you pointed out, you know writing for TV is different mm. than you know, writing for a book or even writing for print or for online media or whatever the case may be. So it is, it is a different type of writing in each in each venue, mm. and, and that's the key. you know even even things that I would put into a piece I was writing if I was writing an op-ed sometimes don't belong in the opinion pieces for News Nation because it's not conversational. And for TV, it has to be conversational. It can't sound like it's didactic, and it can't mm-hmm. sound like, you know, it's a word salad, which you can do in writing and emerge out of it with some clever end to the sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for TV, you lose the audience, and so you have to be clearer and more conversational than I think you, you would be.
2: Yeah, I I know particularly I'm sure for sort of network mornings in particular, I, I think uh it it's like you can almost I, I think most of that is fairly scripted stuff. Where from questions to yes. discussion and things like that. It's almost like you can tell who the who's got the good writers behind them.
1: Yeah. I think for I think for a lot of the morning shows, I think that's uh that's true. But you you can also tell when the the good hosts are asking that kind of follow-up question. They go a
2: little off script. Right. right. Yeah, because normally the second question was prepared the night before, so it has nothing to do with the first answer. Correct. It's, you know, Correct. It's, 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 so it's a, there's no... Interviews are so disjointed if they
1: just read all the questions that were prepared the night before. And those are the best interviewers, right? Yeah. The best interviewers are the ones who follow up yeah. and ask good questions in response to an answer that was just given. I mean, that
2: that I think is part of the reason why cable primetime news does so well because it is all it's far less scripted it's these interviews that go back and forth they're a little wild they're a little crazy and what a difference that was from network morning where everything was sort of canned and pre-done and i think to this day it still largely is mm-hmm. um yeah it's just less uh sort of candid um so when you're looking at a, at a new book opportunity are there certain characteristics you're looking for in a historical legal trial to say like you know this this has the elements we're looking for. I of course the transcript is is yeah. nice to have, but are there certain certain twists in it that you're looking for? So
1: so so far the standard has been is there a transcript? Has it been largely forgotten to history? And is it about someone well known enough that people will immediately care. Now, the, the you know, the next level would be fantastic amazing trial and story maybe not about household, involving household name, mm-hmm. right? We haven't gone there yet. And and truthfully, right now, I, I don't have time to write another book. So I'm currently not working on one because, you know, in the introduction, you get like, I, I just don't have any yeah. available time. But but before some of these new things started, you know, I had an, a lot more time to go through this. Um, so, but that that would be... And David and I are still talking about the possibility of another book down the road, but it's not Mm -hmm. going to be in the next few months. Um, But it would be one with a transcript because I I think that it really does. There's something to us that's been really exciting about being able to see that, that actual description of what was said in court in the form of a transcript. Mm -hmm. So it's not just... People speculating about what was said. Well, you know, it's the same reason Law and Crime Network exists, so people can see what's happening in courtrooms, right? Yep. So they can actually see for themselves. These transcripts are are that, and some of them, as we talked about earlier, are m- more definitive than others. But but that would certainly be one of the. Fact. Yeah. Well, it's
2: amazing to think of you know the transcript of, of Lincoln making his arguments in court. It's yeah. just be fascinating to read those old old documents. Yeah. All right. So at the end of the show, and we're gonna do an extended version of this today, we do a lightning round of fun questions to throw at you and get your immediate responses. All right. So number one, your favorite book as a kid, fourteen or younger?
1: Mm, it would either be a separate piece or it would be um um, <laughs> I'm so young. J.D. Salinger, um, Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. I was about to say, you know, the one with Boo Radley in it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Best whiskey under $75 a
1: bottle. I just had um something was It was called Riff. Look, I, I love the Woodford Reserve Double Oaked is mm-hmm. always a really solid bottle um, really consistent um, has that big sort of caramel and sweetness that I like in, in, uh, in a bourbon. All right. And best whiskey at any price. Is there a clear choice? You know, I haven't, I haven't had enough of the, the most expensive ones to have a point of view that is educated enough. Um, The, uh, you know, again, it sounds like a cliche. I did recently have the, uh, Pappy Van Winkle 20 year. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was insanely great, but how much is that a bottle? That's like 2,500. Um, so, um, it's, but, but it's, there are better bourbons, in the $1,500 range that if my, the editor of my Whiskey Raiders website was mm-hmm. here, he would tell you. Um, yeah. And I saw Whiskey
2: Raiders has, a, has an extension. You're doing like Gin Raiders and Tequila Raiders <laughs> yeah. and right? So you can get, go
1: to this website to get ratings on all these different yeah. liquors. Rum yeah. Rum Raiders. We're, yeah. 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 So it's, uh, we've expanded out ris- Whiskey Raiders um, to other, um, other fine liquors. Next question. Will Kanye's purchase of Parlor amount to anything? No, no. I mean, it, it won't amount to anything because, you know, it, it wasn't dummies who were running Parler. Um, it, it's a tough, it's a tough business. Um, it's, 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 it's tough to have a social media platform that is so siloed so to so to speak yeah. and i don't but think if, but
2: if ryan reynolds can launch a gin you know well, can but, his name behind okay. this
1: make a difference so so the the difference with the gin is that ryan reynolds that was already like a successful gin brand right you stick ryan reynolds name on it and suddenly you do ads with ryan reynolds and you now have a gin that looks like something you want to try it's got name recognition parler and these social media platforms, you know, you have to be invested. It's not just about who's behind it. I mean, I don't think that Elon Musk being behind Twitter is going to make it would make a difference. It would just be whatever the rule changes maybe he makes could make it more appealing or less appealing. Mm-hmm. That could make a difference. But I don't think the name Elon Musk would lead people and I don't think the name Kanye is going to lead people to suddenly start using parler. If you want to talk to me about you know selling cl- I also think that Kanye is, has just been destroying the value of his of his name mm-hmm. um, in a sort of a, a self-inflicted immolation that just seemed Yeah, a few, few unforced errors there uh, in the next presidential election, will either
2: party nominate a can- candidate
1: younger than 75 yeah. years old?: I hope so. I mean, you know look I know th- this also sounds like a cliche, but boy, I would really wish that both parties would nominate someone other than having a Trump-Biden um, rematch. Mm-hmm. And the more I hear what Biden is saying and the more I hear what Trump is saying, the more I fear we're heading right towards a Trump-Biden rematch. Oh, my goodness. All right, best legal drama ever on TV or film? Uh, best legal drama. Uh, again, I'm going to have to think of the name. The uh, Well... Um, the you know the, the the tom cruise jack nicholson oh, a few good a men a few good men yeah. was was a great great one the courtroom scene there was amazing it was amazing yeah. um and um uh what other ones um oh um uh my cousin vinny um Definitely. uh was was another we quote that in our house all the yes, time They're yes identical yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 so that's another good one all right, in the, so keying
2: off that, in the very likely event that Kennedy's Avenger is made into a film, who should play Jack Ruby, and mm. who should play JFK for your flashback scenes?
1: Wow. Um, you know, JFK is easier, right? JFK could be any sort of, you know... Get some handsome young
2: Yeah. You know what's weird? He he died at 46, which yeah. is like way younger than you and I are. It's yeah. kind, of, kind of depressing to think about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and and you know he could you yeah, know that the 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 harder one would be jack ruby um and the sort of the more interesting one would be mm-hmm. jack ruby because you know he's a weird you know it's it's almost and again and i know that this this uh um sounds odd but there's something about just because my cousin vinny was in my head um something about um, joe, um, Pesci. joe Pesci, joe yeah. pecci that that is he might like, be too old for it now. He might, now though, he you might be, yeah. yeah, yeah. You'd need look. There be, was a
2: there was a ninety two film. I looked this up before you and I got together. There was a ninety two film called Ruby, which focused entirely on the early days of Ruby. I mean, so if you're yeah. going from like pick it up just before the murder into the trial and all right. that, um, they would cover things that movie didn't have. But that in that movie it was Danny Aiello. Oh I think yeah, like a few yeah. Remember that guy, but yeah, he's, he's, that was thirty years ago. So obviously. yeah, I mean, like, how about how about like Jack Black? You need somebody who's going to bring it a little sizzle
1: and can you know? Cause it, he hey, was but, sort of a big personality. He right, was, Ruby? he was, but it, it, yeah, it, it would have to be you know someone with a little bit of a seedy underside feel mm-hmm. to him. You need someone who you you know you think could you know, one day be a mobster and another day be sitting there with the cops because he loves hanging out with the cops. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's what Ruby was. I mean, it was like he sort of walked a line. He was closer actually to being a cop wannabe than he was a mobster. But, um, But that's the kind of character you'd need. I'd have to go, I, you know, I'd have to do a full casting. All
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be fun. Well, yeah, I look forward yeah, to that. Yeah.
1: All right. Last
2: question. One piece of good advice for the listeners. Could be on anything. Could be on media, writing,
1: parenting, by the way, a father yeah. of two now. Um, I'll make it about, I'll make it about business. Um, The, the things that I have found, I have been, most successful at are things I cared about. Um, and what I mean by that is that try hard, if people ask me sort of for professional advice, I would say try hard to do something related to something you love. If you love sports, try and get a job that in some way touches uh, the sports world. If you... You know, if you love, uh, it's it's easier if you were to say, oh, you know, I was a math major. Okay, I'm going to become an accountant. Um, but I'm talking about, you know, when you have the opportunity, because I have failed at a number of web properties that I've started. And the ones that have failed have tended to be the ones where on a personal level, I thought it was an amazing idea, but I had no connection to it personally. Mm-hmm. And... Unless you hire the exact right person who has that super commitment, it's not going to work. And so that's been the biggest, you know, sort of uh, success and failure stories for me have been the ones that have failed, have been the ones that I still believe they were all great ideas, but... They just never. never Well, it gets
2: back to you having the the early wisdom to take this this advice of your own back in your third year of law school when you, I guess, didn't connect with your internship as much as you did with your undergraduate TV
1: show work. Yeah. No. Look, it's look it it's about taking chances, but I will say that it's a lot easier to say than to do. Right. If I hadn't had that offer sitting in the background from the law firm. If they hadn't give you, if they didn't give you the year extension, Correct. if they called your bluff, do you Correct. think you'd have? That's you know, it's cl- it's close. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably still would have n- not become a lawyer. But my point is that I don't want to presume for people that it's easy to make these choices. It's so easy to say, go with what you love, do with what you care yeah. about, yeah. etc. You know. But you know what? People have to make hard decisions in life a lot of the time, where you don't get to just do what you love. And so, you know, it's I've been fortunate in that way that that a few things went the right way for me in 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 cases where it could have gone in a lot of different directions. And I think if I was an attorney today, I think I'd be miserable.
2: Yeah, well, I, there are tons of miserable
1: attorneys. That yeah. is for sure. Because I'd be working at a yeah. big law firm. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I probably. You know what? That's not true. Knowing myself, I would have left and gone and done something else. Yeah. But for a while, I would have been miserable. Yeah, maybe it was inevitable. <laughs> you know, maybe it wasn't just like a sliding
2: door in some other world. It was just a matter of time before you. Yeah, uh... yeah, I don't know. So, well, Dan, thanks so much for coming in. It's a pleasure talking. to It was to so you.
1: much fun, Doug. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled about this uh, this podcast and wishing you the best of success. Thank you.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast please download rate subscribe write a comment let me know the authors you want to hear from i read all the comments thank you